Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. A lot of trees have it nice, growing in healthy forests with clean air near a pure babbling brook. Other trees only continue to exist every day out of spite alone. I've mentioned a few of these awful growing conditions before. Bristlecone pines manage to live on barren mountaintops, and the buckeye somehow thrives despite making its home in Ohio. And today, I present you with another tree that fights to eke out a living. Mangroves. Mangroves grow in coastal areas, sometimes directly in tidal zones. That doesn't sound so bad. I like the beach. But mangrove roots end up growing in really salty water. And if there's anything that trees and humans have in common, it's that neither of us like drinking really salty water. Mangroves' ability to thrive in such conditions immediately makes me want to talk about whatever adaptations let it do this, but there's so much more to them than just that one feature. Mangroves themselves and the forests they form are entirely unique ecosystems that serve a myriad of life forms. Mangrove forests are also incredibly helpful for humans as they protect our coastal lands and infrastructure. But mangrove habitats are disappearing. Yes, this is another sad tree, and that's probably why I started off so hard with the jokes. But just what is threatening these fascinating plants, and what can we do to save them? I start off with most episodes, I'll ask the question, what is a mangrove? This is a unique situation in which the tree I'm talking about is not strictly defined by its taxonomic lineage. With many trees, I've had to be specific to genus or species to present you with whatever it is I'm talking about and explain how common names don't actually reflect what that tree really is. Eastern red cedars are junipers, not cedars. The California bay laurel is not a true laurel because it's in a different genus. Some purists will try and tell you that only species in the Rhizophora genus are true mangroves, but a broader and more accepted definition is that mangroves are just trees and shrubs that live in coastal areas within tropic and subtropic latitudes. Warm weather plants that have their feet in salt water. Even here, though, botanists will argue over what species should be included within those boundaries. Some say around 54 species, others are willing to include over 80 species. The exact number is honestly not super important in the context of this episode. I just want to point out that these trees don't have to be closely related to each other to be considered mangroves. What instead connects them is the shared trauma of growing in seawater. Normal seawater is around 3-4% to salt, which feels like a really low number, but go drink some ocean and tell me that that's not that much salt. And honestly, that's bad enough, but in tidal areas, the waterline recedes for part of the day and leaves some of its salt content behind. This can increase the salt content of the rooting area to an upwards of 9%, twice as salty as the ocean. Plants that are able to grow in such saline conditions are referred to as halophytes, and that's not the only burden they bear. When the tides recede, it also exposes their roots to direct sunlight, which can be incredibly hot near the equator. 
Mangroves can't handle frost, though, so it's good to know that they have at least one weakness. With mangroves being so distantly related to each other, there aren't going to be consistent plant parts I can systematically go over and describe to you. So instead, I'll answer what are likely to be some common biological questions. Questions like, uh, how? Like, how do these plants breathe? Oftentimes, I've described tree leaves to be the equivalent of lungs and how gas is exchanged in the plant. But the expanded truth of the situation is that plants take in a lot of atmospheric nutrients from the soil. But the mangrove soil is waterlogged. This has led to various mangrove species developing fancy roots that take on strange shapes to get some air. One species known as the red mangrove, Rhizophora mangle, stands on what are called prop roots. I've mentioned prop roots before with the walking palm. Essentially, the stem of the tree stands on spider legs of thick roots that grow above ground. So what may appear as a cluster of stems is actually a cluster of roots that are reaching up out of the soil and taking in atmospheric nutrients from the actual air through breathing pores. Another adaptation that is seen in a species called the black mangrove, or Avicennia germinans, is pencil roots. This species takes on a more traditional tree form, with one exception. Its base is surrounded by a multitude of thin, woody projections sticking out of the soil like a bed of nails. These are pencil roots, essentially snorkels that grow upward from below ground to once again get some nutrients from the air rather than the earth. But surely the roots that are below ground have to take in water somehow to stay hydrated, so what do they do with the salt? Like any other tree, mangroves still cannot make use of the salt in the water. But what these species consistently do is find ways to filter salt out of the water. For starters, they have weird functions that prevent osmosis from occurring. Osmosis being water moving from areas of low salt concentrations to high salt concentrations so as to find equilibrium. With the surrounding water being as salty as it is, osmosis should suck all the water out of the mangrove, but it doesn't. As for filtration, the roots have extra layers that prevent salt from being absorbed into the overall plant system. These filters make it so that 90% of the salt in the surrounding water is excluded during the water absorption process. That's pretty good. Hardy mangroves can work with that, but they can still do more. Another method that prevents them from becoming too salty is called secretion. These plant bodies pass the salt through their systems straight to the leaves to be excreted during the transpiration or exhale process. This can be observed by noticing salt crystals forming on mangrove leaves. That's salt that was absorbed and subsequently spit out somewhere else. There is another theory regarding the salt secretion process known as the sacrificial leaf hypothesis, which is a very cool name. Mangroves are evergreen, but after a while they have to drop their oldest leaves to make room for newer leaves. It was once believed that salt that would otherwise threaten the mangrove would be sent to these oldest leaves, quickening their already inevitable death, but preventing the harmful salt from affecting healthier plant parts. While interesting, this theory was challenged when a study showed that the old dying leaves did not contain any more salt than any other leaf on the tree. 
These are really cool adaptations, but it's hard to imagine young mangroves growing up big and strong in such a hard world. So how do these incredible trees reproduce? I don't think I need to explain where baby mangroves come from. You know, when a flower and a pollinator love each other very much. You get it. Fruits form and they hold the seeds. Normally, seeds need specific conditions to germinate or start growing in. The right temperature and moisture and safety, and in the words of Sandy Cheeks, the ocean is no place for a squirrel. So what happens instead is that seeds will start germinating inside the mangrove fruit while it's still attached to the plant. That way, when it has to deal with the whims of the ocean current, it already has certain capabilities to support itself. Capabilities like photosynthesis, so that when the seed gets dropped in the water, it can just float along for a time and live off of sunlight. The strategy here is that the seed is taken away in the current and floats until it absorbs enough water to sink. This gives it time to get some distance from the parent plant and reduce the amount of competition during its seedling stage. We're starting to get the picture of how it is these plants manage to live in an otherwise impossible place for a forest to thrive. And so much work goes into just surviving, but all the while these same forests are doing so much more for the world around them. In the various ways that mangroves are defined, some people apply the title mangrove to the forest as a whole. A mangrove forest is sometimes called a mangal as well, but when someone refers to the mangroves, they are more likely referring to the forest ecosystem with everything in it, as opposed to just saying multiple mangrove trees. Mangroves are basically the forest for our coastal areas. In a terrestrial environment, you may have some fields next to some woodlands, with a number of animal species occupying the area. But are these animals more likely to be finding food and shelter among the grasses or among the trees? And when it comes to mangroves, they are among the most incredible forests in the world. According to the Smithsonian Institute, mangroves are among the most productive and biologically complex ecosystems on Earth. But how do these trees support such diversity? For starters, they provide food sources. Things literally feed on the mangrove. A myriad of microbes and fungi will consume any decaying part of the tree, and in turn, will produce nutrients that the mangrove can actually use. And you know it needs it, considering how hard it is to get nutrients from the soil and water. Mangroves also provide shelter for many different species. This helps with the whole food thing too, as so many different sections of the food web are present that anything living there has so many other options of species to consume. So many animals call mangroves home. Let me just start listing them for you. You've got all the little jungle critters, you got bugs, lizards, frogs, snakes, crabs, a ton of crabs. When I visited a mangrove forest, I probably saw more crabs than anything else. You've got fish and shrimp in the water living in all the root systems and mud skippers, which are actually fish, but they spend a lot of time out of the water and can actually climb the tree using its fins. That's what happens when you don't skip fin day at the gym. Larger animals like crocodiles and manatees love mangroves. Winged animals like pelicans and bats roost in the branches, and even primates like the big-nosed proboscis monkey swing from the branches. 
There's even enough forest floor in the mangroves to support the endangered Bengal tiger. So much life is supported by the mangroves, and I haven't even mentioned the human impact, which is also sizable. For starters, all those animals are good eatins for us people. And while we would have trouble using them as shelter, mangroves still provide wood products like any other tree. And apparently mangrove flowers make delicious honey, but it's definitely uncommon to see outside of mangrove growing regions because it would be an impossible thing to mass produce. Just imagine crawling through mangroves with all those crabs and bats and crocodiles to get some honey. One big way that mangroves help coastal societies as a whole is by protecting them from storm surges. Tropical and subtropical coastal zones are no stranger to catastrophic events like hurricanes, cyclones, and tsunamis that drastically raise water levels and threaten anyone living by the water. And you might be thinking, won't those waves just flow right over the mangroves just like they do city streets? In a basic sense, those phenomena are energy. It is energy that is pushing those massive waves forward. But when they hit something physical, they lose some of their energy. With enough mangrove between open water and actual coast, storm surges can be severely limited because they help disperse all that energy. In an ideal world, our tropical and subtropical coasts would be protected by miles of mangrove. As our climate continues to change at high rates, our mangroves do more than ever for us. We are seeing more frequent and intense weather events with storm surges that threaten our coastal cities. More mangroves wouldn't just help with that, but also with general sea level rise that we are seeing with decreasing ice in our Arctic zones. Mangroves also help mitigate climate change in general. We know that these worsening global phenomena are heavily impacted by our increased output of greenhouse gases, like carbon dioxide, and we are always trying to find ways to reduce our carbon usage. Part of the support for a more forested world is with how trees take in and hold carbon from the atmosphere. Mangroves are no different, but in a normal terrestrial forest, plants die and decay, and when they do, they release carbon back into the atmosphere. This is called the carbon cycle, and is taught to us in grade school. But what makes mangrove plant parts different is that when they die and fall, they fall in the water and sink. Rather than decaying and releasing carbon back into the atmosphere, this carbon is buried in the soil at the bottom of our coastal areas. It's something referred to as blue carbon, and is a more effective way for nature to store carbon for longer periods of time. But if you've listened to my podcast before, you can expect that a list of a tree's importance is closely followed by why it's in serious danger. And the mangrove is again no different. The data behind mangrove habitat loss is a little muddy because we didn't start actively measuring ecosystem size until the 21st century. That being said, a decrease in the size of our mangles was well noticed and documented throughout the mid to late 20th century. It's estimated that the 1980s saw the most significant rate of loss with around 35% of mangrove forests disappearing in that decade. But if we didn't measure it, then how do we know? We don't always have to rely on things like satellite imagery to know how much area a forest takes up. Over the years, people have documented how far along and out from a coastline mangles have extended, and can look at where they are now and do the math. So we have, with our eyes, seen mangroves disappearing. But what happened to them? Some of these impacts are not our fault. 
relieved exhales all around for that. But mangroves are trees that, despite somehow doing well in harsh environments, don't handle massive change all that great. Prior to humans, the last big global change was when the Ice Age ended 14,000 years ago. That was even more Arctic ice melting, which means even more sea level rise. Through fossil evidence, we've come to believe that mangroves were much more diverse and numerous prior to this event, and that great environmental change damaged them to the point of vulnerability that they never quite recovered from. But from there, it was us humans that picked up the impact. Aquaculture has had a massive impact on our mangroves. Aquaculture is like agriculture, but aqua. Farming in the water, I guess, is the right way to say it. I mentioned earlier that all those animals calling the mangroves home are good food for people, but there's a lot of people to feed. And in the mid-20th century, the Western world really got a taste for shrimp, which very commonly live in mangroves. Southeast Asian countries noticed this trend and wanted to capitalize on it, which led to them decimating mangroves in order to construct shrimp farming operations that could feed billions of people. This is one of the main reasons why I don't eat shrimp. I'm not fully vegetarian, though I recognize the environmental benefits that such a diet has. But there are a few things that I just don't do, and between shrimp farms built over mangroves and the obscene bycatch that comes from fresh-caught shrimping operations, shrimp just doesn't seem worth it to me. I know there are shrimp that are not farmed in this way, but so much unsustainable shrimp exists in the market that it's easier to just personally exclude it. Another reason that mangroves are being reduced is because of just regular agriculture. Farming can be done on coastlands, and if you were to cut down mangroves and expand your coastline, well, that's more room to farm on. This coastline expansion is also performed for the sake of urbanization. People love living on the coast, and so cities in those areas want to expand in order to accommodate for increased population growth. But it hurts coastal ecosystems that help us. Let's skip ahead to the hopeful section of this tirade against humanity. We are actively trying to expand the mangroves. After decades of noticing that these habitats were decreasing, we put hard limitations on this form of land exploitation and created methods of monitoring its status. Habitat loss is already down to less than 1% a year, which is stable, but still not an increase. And these numbers are only specifically about mangrove forest size, with no metric attached to measure the level of impact that fewer mangroves is having on surrounding areas. The hardest part is trying to figure out how to regrow these forests. They are nothing like forests that grow on normal ground, so our understanding of massive replanting operations don't do us any good. When massive habitat loss was observed in the 1980s, the World Bank spent $35 million trying to regrow mangroves and ended up being only 20% successful because of their limited understanding of how to reestablish these trees. That is a lot of people's worst fear and part of the reason why there's a lot of opposition to environmental projects. People worry that we're just wasting money. Around the same time though, efforts were started on researching the idea of rebuilding our coastlines so as to better support mangroves and boost that regrowth success number. That work combined with new replanting efforts leave scientists hopeful. 
numerical aspirations are thrown around a lot. We're going to reduce this much by this year. Environmental media is kind of flooded with it, but honestly, it's better than not having a goal at all. Despite not having any growth in recent history, scientists hope to see a 20% increase in mangrove habitat by the end of this decade. I'd love to see that happen. Mangroves are incredible, and on that basis alone, they deserve it. On my sister's birthday, like seven years ago, we went kayaking through mangroves, and it was an awesome experience. Mangroves are quiet refuges that hide you from the world and would make you feel secluded if they weren't teeming with life. It's all that life, and ours as well, that depends on the survival and presence of the mangrove. If you thought that mangroves biology was fascinating, come back in two weeks when I talk about some of the strangest and oldest trees on Earth. Cycads. Cycads are relics of the age of dinosaurs, and it's wild that we still share a planet with them. On July 12th, we'll travel way back in time to learn about the plants that the animals in Jurassic Park would have eaten. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.